Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 18 this morning. And we'll uh, make our way back into the book of Acts. And we'll be looking at verses 22 through 28 uh, this morning. So once you find your place, I'll uh, begin reading in Acts uh, chapter 18, starting in verse 22. Now this is at the uh, end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third missionary journey. And so we'll pick it up in uh, Acts 18, starting in verse 22. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy Word. Verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, at the end of uh, Paul's second missionary journey, he made a short trip from Corinth to Ephesus. He didn't stay there very long, but there he met uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He had met them at, at Corinth. They had worked together at Corinth. And they apparently traveled with him to Ephesus for a very short uh, uh, visit. And then Paul leaves probably from Ephesus after a few days and, um, and moves on to, uh, back to Caesarea and back to his home church in Antioch. Let's see here. I've got, let me see if I can, there we go, got it. So if you look at Paul's second missionary journey, he's been in Corinth. From there, he and Priscilla and Aquila sail over to Ephesus for a very short visit. And then to end the second missionary journey, he then sails back down to Caesarea, goes up to Antioch, spends some time with the church there. And then we read that uh, he then starts out on his third missionary journey which is this one from Antioch. He goes through the Galatian region. He goes through the Phrygia area. And his sights are to go back to Ephesus where he kind of ended his second missionary journey. He wants to go back there because he wasn't able to stay long. There's a tremendous opportunity for ministry there. So that's eventually where he's heading. 
But before we get Paul to Ephesus, Luke cuts away from the Apostle Paul and takes us back to Ephesus in, the, uh, in Paul's absence and shows us there how God uses all kinds of people to advance His kingdom. And I think that's one of the encouraging things we'll see in our passage this morning, that God is going to use this couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila uh, to have a great ministry in the life of Apollos. And that ministry that they're going to have is going to be one that will propel Apollos in even a far greater ministry than he would have had otherwise. So that's kind of where we're going. So if you look, for example, now at uh, verse 24, we're back in Ephesus. And verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. So Priscilla and Aquila are there. Paul has already left Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila are still there. He left them behind. And then Apollo shows up. He comes from Alexandria. So let's uh, look at this man Apollos as we start out. Uh, Notice first off in verse 24, he's described as an Alexandrian by birth. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But I want to discuss just for a second his name. It's a very unusual name. He's given the name of Apollos, and yet we're told in verse 24 that he's a Jew. He's a Jew who's given the name Apollos. Now, what's the significance of the name Apollos, or what's the meaning of the name Apollos? Well, if you look up the Bible dictionaries, you'll find there's basically two different uh, origins for the name of Apollos. One of them comes from the Greek god Apollo, so that it can mean given by Apollo. Now that would be very strange for a Jewish family to name one of their sons Apollo. But recognizing they're in Alexandria, Alexandria has been very Hellenized, they've been very influenced by Greek culture, and apparently this Jewish family had adopted much of the Greek uh, religion and culture around them, so much so that they possibly named their son Apollos after the Greek god Apollo. Now, Apollo was the god of prophecy, music, art, wisdom, light. And again, this raises questions why they would ever do that, but apparently their Jewish roots of this family were infiltrated by the Greek philosophy and religion. And like many other Jews of the day, they had become idolaters, So they had just embraced a lot of the paganism around. So that's one way to interpret the name Apollos. The other option is found in Hitchcock's Bible Names Dictionary. And that is the name Apollos comes from a word which means one who destroys. For example, in uh, Revelation chapter 9 verse 11, Satan's name is Apollyon which is a derivative from this same word, which means to destroy. So Satan is the one who destroys. He's the destroyer. Well, it could be that these parents named their their son Apollos 
after this derivative of, of the name, this meaning, one who destroys. And if they did, my goodness, it makes you wonder, what did that baby do when he came out of the womb that the parents said, I'm going to name this kid one who destroys? I mean, it's just, I don't know. But I'm sure a lot of parents have thought about naming their kids uh, after that name. But uh, whatever, whatever the background is, it's a very unusual name. And it's interesting that after he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he never changed his name. Whether it goes back to the Greek god Apollo or to the concept of one who destroys, he didn't change his name, uh, which, which I think is kind of interesting. But uh, he was converted to Christ. Maybe he was raised in an unbelieving or, or very secular Jewish family. But at some point, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and he shows up in, in Ephesus. Now again, he's from Alexandria. Now Alexandria is in Egypt, so he's an Egyptian. And Alexandria was a very important city in northern Egypt. Very influential city. It was said they had the largest library in the world. And it rivaled Athens' reputation for learning. There's also a very large Jewish population in Alexandria at this time in the first century. And they had been very Hellenized, meaning they had been very uh, immersed into Greek culture. So they spoke Greek. And because of that, they began to lose the ability to read their Hebrew Scriptures. And so about 200 A.D. in Alexandria, a bunch of the Jews came together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. And we refer to that as the Septuagint. And this became the dominant translation among the Jews in Greek cultures. And it kind of became like their new King James Version. Uh, they, they couldn't really speak or read Hebrew because they've been immersed for generations uh, in this Greek culture. So they now have their Bible in Greek. And that's the Bible they used in the synagogues. Alexandria was also the uh, the place where the first century Jewish Hellenistic scholar Philo arose to prominence. He advanced a hermeneutic that used allegory to try to harmonize uh, Greek philosophy with the Hebrew Scriptures. Not a good hermeneutic, but Philo was very renowned. He had a great influence. Some of the early church fathers were influenced by his his approach to interpreting the Scriptures. The gospel first came to Alexandria on the day or after Pentecost because we're told in Acts chapter 2 that some of the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost had come from Egypt and Libya and Cyrene. And these are other parts of Africa. So they were all there in Jerusalem. Some of them from Egypt. So they would have been there from Alexandria. So Pentecost Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. They preached. Thousands got saved. Some of them brought the gospel back to their hometown. And no doubt that's how the gospel originally went to Alexandria. There was a lot they, they didn't understand about the gospel, but at least they heard it and they held it in a very um, uh, infantile way, we could say. But uh, that's probably how the gospel first came back there. And possibly that through that means... Uh, Apollos eventually heard the gospel and was converted. So back to Apollos, our description of him. In verse uh, 24, he's uh, from Alexandria by birth. He's an eloquent man, 
which means it implies he's very learned, he's very cultured, he was highly educated, a very effective communicator. Next, we're told that he was uh, mighty in the Scriptures. That would be in the Septuagint. That would have been the Bible that the Jews had in their synagogue. So he was mighty in the Scriptures, meaning he was very capable, he was very competent, he rightly understood it, he was a good workman, he was one who was powerful and, and skillful in the use of the Old Testament. He was, a, he was a scholar. He was mighty in the Scriptures. This is the same word, by the way, that's used for Moses, who is a man of might in words, or power in words. It's also used of Christ in Luke 24. The two disciples on the way back from Emmaus. Uh, well, when they were visiting with Christ, on the way to Emmaus, I'm sorry, they spoke of a prophet mighty indeed in word, referring to Jesus. So this is a word that's used of Apollo. So he was a man very competent, very skillful in the use of Scripture. And then we're told in verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord probably uh, you know, refers to the basics of the Lord, which would be referring to Christ. So he did understand the very basics of the gospel, some of it, he, but he will have deficiencies in his understanding. And notice it says the way of the Lord, and that expression, the way, is used a number of times in Acts to describe the early church, those who were part of the way. And that was one of the, the ways they described early believers and it probably comes from our Lord's comment in John fourteen six, where He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So He had been instructed in some of the, the basics of the way of the Lord, of, of the Christian faith. We're also told in verse 25 that He was um, fervent in spirit. And in verse 26, speaking out boldly in the synagogue. So he was a man who was, who was on fire for what he believed. Uh, the word fervent actually means boiling over in spirit. So he was a man who was passionate. He had great energy, great conviction, very enthusiastic in proclaiming the truth as he understood it. We're also told in verse 25 that... He was uh, teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So what he understood about Jesus, he was teaching that accurately. But in verse 25, Luke adds, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So all he knew was the baptism of John, which implies he did not know the baptism of Christ. He knew the baptism of John, but not the baptism of Christ. So, at some point, those uh, believers that came back from Pentecost brought back and only kind of understood possibly just the baptism of, of John the Baptist. So, he's only acquainted with the baptism of John. So, he was defective, or maybe a better word is he was deficient and incomplete in his understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was accurate to the extent that he understood it, but there were some pretty significant gaps in his understanding. 
because he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Now, what was the baptism of John? Well, the baptism of John was for repentance. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he understood that. He understood the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. But there was much about the teachings of Christ that he did not understand. To what extent, we really don't know. We're not told. But we do know that uh, in Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist said, that he, it says he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, it would seem that since Apollos did not know about the baptism of Christ, he only was acquainted with the baptism of John, then he knew about repentance, but he had not yet received the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if he was a believer, he already had the Holy Spirit indwelling in him through regeneration, but he hadn't received the new covenant added blessings and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he was deficient. He understood to a degree, but he only got as far as John the Baptist and the theology of John the Baptist. So there was much that he did not understand. So he was a very powerful man, a very effective teacher, very skillful in the Scriptures, but still there were some major gaps, some holes that needed to be filled. So this, uh, this is why Priscilla and Aquila are so important. Because Apollos needed to be brought into a deeper understanding of uh, the Gospel and the ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit. He did not understand that. Now, what's interesting is next time in Acts 19, Paul is going to arrive to Ephesus and he's going to meet up with 12 Jewish men that are only familiar with the baptism of John also. Very similar to Apollos. So Paul prays for them and they receive the baptism of the, of the Spirit and they receive the Spirit. So it may be a similar situation with Apollos in Acts chapter 18. So wherever he's at, he's still incomplete. He has a minimalist view of the Gospel and the Christian life. So he's very effective, very accurate to what he understood, but he needed help. So all of this, of course, is about to change. He was immature as a theologian. He was immature in his understanding of the Christian life because he didn't understand the ministry of the Spirit of God. And so now comes in Priscilla and Aquila. By the way, before I leave Apollos, he may be, we may have just been introduced to the man who eventually will be the author of the book of Hebrews. And uh, this was Martin Luther was the first to suggest that the author of the book of Hebrews, which no one really knows who wrote the book, but that Apollos was the one who did it. That was Martin Luther's suggestion. I think of all the people, Apollos is probably an excellent uh, choice or guess because the Greek of the book of Hebrews is some of the highest, best Greek in the New Testament. It's very sophisticated. It's very beautiful. It's, it's on a higher level than like the Greek of John, for example. 
So it would fit because Apollos was a very highly educated man. You can see a lot of Paul's influence in Hebrews because he was, he was someone who knew Paul and had, had ministry with Paul. So there's a, he's a good choice if you want to go uh, that direction. But anyway, in verse 26, we find that uh, he, Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, Paul had worked with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And they had traveled with Paul to Ephesus. So, Paul had spent about two years in Corinth. And a lot of that time was with Priscilla and Aquila because they were all tent makers, you remember, uh, as we saw that earlier. And they had a close relationship with one another. Uh, Later on, when Paul writes a letter to the Romans, he will say of Priscilla and Aquila that they risked their necks for me. So they had a very close relationship, a close bond. And uh, when Paul leaves Ephesus, at the end of his second missionary journey, he leaves them there, and that's where they're going to meet up now with Apollos. But they're all uh, tent makers And uh, we also know that uh, Priscilla and Aquila will host a church in their home when they eventually go back to Rome. So they're a very godly couple. And uh, they they had been much influenced by the Apostle Paul. Now when you look at verse 26, one of the questions is why is Priscilla mentioned first? The wife. Why is she mentioned first? Because that's that's not the norm. Normally the husband is mentioned first. And so you can read different uh, suggestions uh, as to why she is mentioned first here. Some say that it's because she may have come from a high-ranking family in Rome originally where they were expelled by Claudia, the emperor. And uh, so she's mentioned first due to her high social standing. The problem with that explanation is that I don't know if, if Luke would have endorsed that cultural hierarchy knowing that we're all one in Christ and that he's giving preference to her by mentioning her first because she's of a higher social status when that doesn't mean anything within the body of Christ. I, I just don't, I'm not persuaded that that's the best way to, to understand that. Uh, I think Luke understood that God is no respecter of persons and he would be violating the norm of putting the husband first. And I don't think he would do that because of that reason. So the other reason that most people give is that uh, the wife, Priscilla, was more theologically advanced than her husband, or maybe she was better able to express biblical truth than her husband. Now Derek Thomas in his Reformed Expository Commentary takes this particular view. He says that Priscilla may have understood the gospel better than her husband or was able to articulate it better. And so she is mentioned first because she had the greater theological or doctrinal or gospel ministry to Apollos in helping him understand the things that he was lacking in. Now, of course, if she did this, this uh, understanding she would not have undermined uh, the headship of Aquila Uh, This would have also taken place in the home, 
not in the church or not out in public, but she may have very much participated in helping Apollos understand uh, the gospel better and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Luke puts her first because she had the better theological head, possibly more spiritual of the two. Uh, but whatever setting this is in, it's not in the church where she's teaching in the church or having leadership over men in the church. That's not what's going on here. This is taking place on the side, probably in their home in a private setting. If this is a view, if this is the better view, then Priscilla is kind of like Mary who was sitting at the feet of Jesus just soaking it in. And uh, she may have had that love for the Word and been able to provide this wonderful ministry to Apollo. Now notice what they did with him in verse 26. They took him aside and explained to him the way more accurately. The phrase of God, the way of God, the phrase of God is is um, questionable in most of the... Uh, of the uh, textual apparatus in the in the New Testament, uh, will will question whether that was originally a part of this verse or not. But they explained to him the way. Again, the phrase "the way," the the way the early Christians were described. They were members of the way, followers of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So they were involved in taking him aside and teaching him more accurately about Christ and the Christian life. Now notice again, by taking him aside, is that uh, they probably again took him into their home to carry on this ministry. Now they were qualified to do that, even though they were tent makers. They were tent makers by trade. But again, they had spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul, at least a year and a half, maybe two years with Paul. They'd absorbed a lot of Paul's theology, a lot of his understanding of Scripture. They drink deeply from the wisdom and the truth and the inspired uh, doctrines that he was given by Christ. They spent a lot of time with him. So they were qualified, even though they were tent makers. And Apollos had not yet met Paul at this time, understand. But they had. They had lived with Paul. They had spent a long time with Paul. So they could discern the inadequacies in Apollos' ministry. So they see Aquila and Priscilla see this, this man with incredible potential and gifts, and yet he needed help to understand the Word of God more accurately, but how do you do it? That's the question. I mean, Apollos is this educated guy coming from probably the upper crust of society, a man who is very gifted, very knowledgeable, a very cultured, and they're just tent makers. I mean, they're common, sweating it out in the old shop, you know, getting dirty, grimy. I mean, they're tent makers. So how do you, from a lower station, minister to someone of a higher station? That, that was kind of their dilemma. And yet the way they did it, I think, shows a lot of grace and wisdom. They took him aside. They didn't correct or challenge Apollos in public. They didn't stand up and try to refute him or embarrass him or contradict him in front of everybody else. 
They didn't stand up and interrupt him or challenge him in, in public saying, brother, let, let, let us enlighten you because your, your understanding is just deficient. And no one likes to be put down like that in public. But they corrected him in private. And I think that shows a lot of grace and wisdom. Now, of course, there are times when a public rebuke is certainly appropriate. Uh, Paul did that with Peter in Galatians 2. Christ did that repeatedly with Pharisees and scribes at times. But even when it comes to the church carrying out the most sober form of correction of someone who's fallen into sin, what do they do in church discipline? What's the first step? You go to your brother and you reprove him in private. In private. And I think the wisdom of that is that we are all proud creatures. And when someone rebukes you in public, or when someone uh, points out your flaws in front of other people, it's, it's embarrassing. And a lot of times our pride responds rather than our mind and our heart. And I think this is where I think we have to be careful and learn wisdom from Priscilla and Aquila. They didn't stand up and point out where he was deficient. No, they quietly took him off to the side and instructed him. And I think the majority of times when we need to deal with someone who is in error or someone who is doing something they shouldn't be doing, probably the better approach is to do it in private, outside of the public eye. The majority of times, I think, uh, call for a gentler, kinder approach. And again, uh, I think it's amazing that they took that, that approach with Apollos. Now, they could have said, you know, we spend time with Apostle Paul, we have the right to rebuke you, and made a big fuss out of it in public. But they didn't. They did it in private. They took him aside. And I think this shows a lot of godly wisdom. In fact, if you need God's wisdom in the use of your tongue, you need to be sure and read and meditate on Proverbs 15 and 16. A couple of excerpts from there. Proverbs 15 verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. 16.21 Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. 16.24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Well, you don't make knowledge acceptable a lot of times by just confronting someone or rebuking them and exposing them or shaming them or ridiculing them in public. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to stir up anger? Use a harsh word. And then do it in public. Do it in front of other people. And uh, you're not going to get the response that you hoped to receive. Now all of these, of course, these uh, godly qualities and Proverbs are reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was known for His humility and His gentleness. Now there are some times when He did rebuke openly and severely. But the Beatitudes speak and reflect His character and also the character He wants in us. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. These are the kinds of qualities that exhibit the character of Christ that He wants 
to be fashioned within us as well. The New Testament says that Christ, that a battered reed He would not break and a smoldering wick He would not put out. He says, I am gentle and humble of heart. And so I think what we see in Priscilla and Aquila is very much a Christ-likeness, a humility, a gentleness to not embarrass Apollos in front of the people, but to take him aside and to deal with it. Now there's an application of this since we've all been sheltering in place uh, for many weeks. Families are congested more at home and all there's great blessings to that that we've experienced. But there can also be a greater temptation for conflict We're pressed inside the home more than we used to be. There's opportunities for friction to occur. There's opportunities for for maybe our tempers to be set on fire a little bit. And it's how we speak to other people within the home. It's how we we correct maybe the children. And obviously you can't always do it in private. But when you're in a public setting, you should better take them aside and correct them than to embarrass them by by doing maybe it in public. But what we see in Priscilla and Aquila is wisdom for dealing with even family conflicts uh, instead of shouting out and yelling at someone in the home. You know, if you have an issue, take them off in another room and visit with them. I think sometimes that, that humility, that gentleness shows a lot of the wisdom of Christ. And uh, we certainly should all pray for a, a greater measure of that until we can... I kind of get back to normal. Well, Apollos' response to their teaching, uh, to his credit, was very good. I mean, there's no indication that he uh, revolted against it, but uh, he was willing to learn from those who were his inferior and to receive instruction from them. Even though he had never met Paul, but uh, he received their instruction even though he was superior to them in, in, in every cultural way. Uh, and he received that, and I think it greatly blessed his future ministry. And it just shows that God can use anybody to bless anybody. That God can use tent makers to bless this man who is of an ivory tower education, who from a, a great cultured family and upbringing, who is much their superior, and yet he used some humble tent makers to radically transform this man's understanding of the gospel and truth that basically enabled his ministry to mushroom in ways that never would have without it. So God used them in a a very powerful way. In verse 27 and 28, speaking of Apollos, And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, now when it says Achaia, thank Corinth. So he wants to go back, he wants to go to Corinth. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now notice it says they believed through grace. It doesn't say they believed in grace which we all should, but they believed through grace. That is, the grace of God was the means by which they came to faith. Which I think is a verse which certainly suggests that faith is a gift of God. But He greatly helped those who believed through grace. Verse 28, 
For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. See, as a result of Priscilla and Aquila's ministry with Apollos, he had a deeper, better, more accurate understanding of the gospel of Christ and the Christian life, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So now he was, he was of much usefulness in the hands of God when he finally went to Corinth. Um, so the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila bore great fruit in this man's life. And he went on to have a tremendous ministry in Corinth. Now, Paul and Apollos uh, certainly uh, became close co-workers in the ministry. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapters 1-4, through 4, they were both uh, so blessed in their ministry at Corinth that there were some divisions that began to arise within the church. Some were followers of Apollos, some were followers of Paul. And Paul had to kind of rebuke them for that spirit. But he, Paul had a great uh, esteem for Apollos and uh, spoke highly of him. And uh, obviously, God used Apollos and Paul mightily in the church of Corinth. Well, by way of application from this, I'd like to, uh, to make basically two, two applications. The first one that we see from Apollos is that knowledge is not enough. And being useful to Christ in the ministry, knowledge is not enough. Learning is important. Knowledge is important. I will never undermine the importance of knowledge. Uh, we all need more of it. But knowledge in and of itself is not enough. Learning and even fervor, fervency are good, but in themselves they're not enough without godly Christian character along with it. J.I. Packer in the book, Knowing God, the women's Bible studies working through that, says people, or they, they've been on leave, they'll start up again, Lord willing, soon. But people can have much knowledge about Christ, Packer says, but little knowledge of Christ. Meaning that they can have a lot of intellectual knowledge, but very little practical grace and power in their walk with the Lord. And when there's little fruit of the Holy Spirit, little walking by the Spirit, showing the humility and grace of the Spirit, then there can be serious deficiencies. Now, Apollos had much knowledge and he had much fervor and he knew a little bit about Christ. But he didn't know about the baptism of Christ. He possibly didn't even have the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit Himself because he did not know about the baptism of Christ or the baptism of the Spirit, which Christ does. So he was lacking in that. As gifted as he was, as knowledgeable as he was, his ministry was deficient because he lacked the understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit in his life. And thank God for Priscilla and Aquila. And that really brings me to the second application. And that is, thank God that the Lord uses all kinds of people in the church to build His kingdom. He uses Apollos, men of great education, men of great talents and abilities and insight. He uses the men like the Apostle Paul. Uh, he uses 
People like Priscilla and Aquila. He uses all kinds of people. Each one has their own God-given set of gifts and talents. Each ministering in their own way to build up the body of Christ. God uses everybody. That means He can use you. He can use me. And you may think that, you know, you're not, you're not blessed with great talents or great gifts. Few, few people are. And you may think that you don't have much to offer the Lord. I mean, I'm just kind of an average person. I don't have any great abilities or any great skills. And you may think of yourself like that little boy did on the side of the mountain near the Sea of Galilee. When there were over 5,000 men gathered and Christ's desire was to feed the people and they found this little boy. And all he had was five loaves and two fish. Well, what is that? This is totally inadequate. This can't meet the need. My abilities are so small, they're so tiny, that they won't do anybody any good. But see, if you do what the little boy did, and you put your skills, your talents, your resources, as small as they may be, into the hands of the Master, then He can do great and glorious things with Him. Even if you're a humble tent maker, and you're not good at business, and you're not good with numbers, and you're not good in this, and you're not good in that, and you're just very average all the way across the board, all you know how to do is take a needle and try to stitch two things together. That's about all you can do is make tents. And yet you put that ability, that skill into the hands of Christ and you watch Him multiply it to bring great glory to His name and build His kingdom. On one level, Priscilla and Aquila as tent makers were not anything special. They didn't have anything great to contribute to the kingdom of God. And yet God used them mightily to bless Apollos, which was used mightily to build up the church of Christ and to expand the kingdom of God. So God can use people of humble gifts and abilities and yet use them for His own glory. And I think that's what's encouraging about this this passage. James Montgomery Boyce uh, in his commentary told a wonderful story to illustrate this. And it comes from back in the days of the 16th century of the Reformation in England. And you have a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer, for the first 30 years of his life, was a zealous Roman Catholic. In his own words, he was an obstinate papist. And when uh, Latimer uh, was ordained as a priest in the church, received his Bachelor of Divinity, he had to preach a sermon. And his whole sermon was lambasting Philip Melanchthon, who is Martin Luther's right-hand man in the Reformation in Germany. That's how much he hated the Protestant Reformation. He preached a whole sermon just attacking Philip Melanchthon. But there is a, a young monk of a much lower level by the name of Thomas Bilney from Cambridge. And he understood the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And he admired Hugh Latimer. Because Hugh Latimer was very educated, very gifted, 
just a marvelous man of leadership abilities. And little Thomas Bilney, this, uh, this, this little humble monk, thought, man, what an asset Latimer would be if he would come to know Christ and join us in the work of the Reformation in England. Now, Bilney, again, was uh, nothing special. He was a man of small stature, so they nicknamed him Little Bilney, so I made his picture a little bit smaller. Uh, but uh, Latimer was his superior in every way, but he was so opposed to the gospel. So Bilney thought, how can I bring the gospel to Hugh Latimer? And he started thinking about that, and he remembered, he knew, of course, that priests were required to hear confessions of sin in those days. So Thomas Bilney went to Hugh Latimer and he said, as a priest, Latimer as a priest, I need to confess my sins. Will you hear my confession? And of course he had to. So they went in their little box or whatever they did back then. And Bilney, this little monk, started confessing his sins to Latimer and he began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. He confessed to Latimer that he was, he was a sinner that he was totally unable to save himself by his own good works. How Jesus had died on the cross and bore the the penalty for his sins and fully satisfied the justice and the wrath of God for his sins. And he told him how by faith alone he had believed in Christ and received the gift of Christ's own righteousness imputed to his account. Apart from good works, he was saved. And by the end of his confession, Latimer had heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And the Spirit of God began to use that in his heart and mind. And eventually, Hugh Latimer was converted by the grace of God and became a believer. Well, Latimer then became one of the leading reformers in England. And he assisted Thomas Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and reforming the English church. And he was a highly influential uh, preacher and used mightily by God in England. J.C. Ryle said this of Hugh Latimer, no one of the reformers probably sowed the seeds of Protestant doctrine so widely and effectually among the middle and lower classes as Latimer. For his faithfulness to Jesus Christ his willingness to endure hardship for the gospel, he died a martyr by the hand of bloody Queen Mary in the year 1555. Now Latimer, uh, if you read Fox's book of martyrs, Latimer is remembered as uh, dying alongside his close friend Nicholas Ridley, and they were burned alive in Oxford England by, again, bloody Queen Mary. This is because during that time they had left the Roman Catholic Church and its teachings. Latimer and Ridley both. And they were basically tied back to back to the stake. They had renounced together the Pope's supremacy. They had renounced the doctrine of transubstantiation 
For them, communion was a spiritual feast. It was not a sacrifice like transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They'd renounced transubstantiation. They took out the altars of the church for plain wooden tables. And because of that, bloody Queen Mary, a staunch Roman Catholic, had them and many other reformers burned alive at the stake during her reign. Hundreds of them died being burned alive at the stake without ever recanting. Ridley was heard saying to Latimer as they were tied to the stake, Be of good cheer, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or lessen the intensity of the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And as the bundles of sticks were caught on fire under them and around them, Latimer raised his voice so Ridley could hear his voice over the crackling of the burning wood. And he cried out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, shall never be put out. And this phenomenal ministry, this phenomenal uh, man of God in England, who was such an influential, powerful voice for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, had his ministry because of a humble, inferior monk who went in great humility and gentleness and brought the Gospel to to Hugh Latimer. God heard Latimer's request that this day they will light such a candle by God's grace in England as I shall, that I trust shall never be put out. God heard that prayer. Three years later, bloody Queen Mary died and Elizabeth became queen. Elizabeth was a Protestant queen. And the candle that was lit in the flames of their martyrdom flamed up into a mighty torch for the Gospel of Christ. What we see in Acts chapter 18 and also in the life of Hugh Latimer is how God can use anybody to build up and advance His kingdom. He can use humble tent makers like Priscilla and Aquila. Vessels who offer their abilities, though they may be small and humble and lowly, they offer them up into the hands of the Master and watch Him use them for His glory and for His honor. He used Thomas Bilney in the conversion of Hugh Latimer, which just brought tremendous blessings of the Gospel into England. And so that we we can be encouraged that God can use all kinds of people to build up His kingdom. So don't ever underestimate God's ability to use you. Regardless of how many blessings or gifts or skills or abilities you might have or not have, God can still use you mightily for His cause. Just take your gifts with a humble heart. Offer them to the Lord. Because God is pleased and God brings glory to Himself by using Some people like Apollos and some people like Priscilla and Aquila. 
Some people of high station, some people of low station, and people in between. God uses blue-collar workers and white-collar workers and no-collar workers. He can use anybody, which encourages us that He can use us. If you look at Oxford, England, if you walk down Broad Street, right in the middle of the street, you find this basically marker because this is where Hugh Latimer and this is where uh, Nicholas Ridley were burned alive. This is the marker of where their martyrdom took place. And now people just walk by it and they don't even know what in the world that cross is doing in the middle of the road in Oxford. And yet those of us who understand can draw encouragement from that. Because the grace and the ministry of those men, particularly in the life of Hugh Latimer, was, was propelled forward by the ministry of those who were humble and lowly. And so God can use our lives in tremendous ways. So whatever you are, whatever you have, I think like that little boy, we need to offer it to Christ place it in His hands, ask Him to use it, to multiply it for His kingdom, for His glory, and know that He will use it in the way that He seems best. So again, God uses all kinds of people to build His kingdom. So He can use you, and He can use me as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that we can... Uh, learn of the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and just how they were able to uh, bring greater truth and light into the mind and the heart of Apollos. Possibly even the means of him receiving the baptism of Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would have launched him in a tremendous, fruitful, profitable ministry, not only in Ephesus, but later in Corinth as well. And Father, we thank You for the encouragement that You do use people just like us for Your glory and Your kingdom. So Lord, give us a greater thirst to be a part of that work. A greater desire to want to, to have our gifts, our abilities, whether they be small or great, but to be useful for Your glory, for the advancement of Your kingdom. Oh God, use us too. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For our final hymn, please turn to page 644 in your red hymnals. May, my, may the mind of Christ my Savior.
may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting self And now may our God of grace empower us to be like the Lord Jesus in all of His humility and all of His gentleness that we might be useful to the Master in His hands and prepared for every good work. May God bless you. Amen.